Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, the main host, and joining me for part three of our series deep dive into The Search is Fran from A Healthy Dose of Fran. Welcome back for the end of the trilogy. I didn't want this day to come. It's just... (laughs) It's just it's just a sad day. It's a sad day. But thank you for having me back. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, so, uh, folks, if you have not listened to the first two parts, highly recommend you do that. We're going to be talking uh, entirely about uh, the whole of the search. Um, so we're going to be focusing primarily today on part three, of course. But at the end, we're going to be kind of doing an overall Uh, just thoughts and discussion. So highly recommend you check out those previous two parts. Um, But in the meantime, we're going to get right into this. So a few things that we've been keeping in mind throughout this series. First is Zuko's evolution as the Fire Lord. Uh, Second is Azula's journey through madness. Third is piecing together the shards of the past. And fourth, the influence of Ozai and Ursa. We've seen all of these elements really uh, become a huge part of this narrative as Zuko starting his journey as being someone who wants to restore dignity to his family and to the Fire Nation. Azula, now new re- newly released from the mental institution, has joined the gang for this journey, but is plagued still by visions of her mother. And then we see all these flashbacks, moments that we saw in the show, and now we're getting additional context from them and how it relates to the story of Ursa and what happened to her. And lastly, the influence of Ozai and Ursa has been a huge part of this story. Their parenting, or lack thereof in some cases, has been a huge part of molding Azula and Zuko. But also, we understand why they parent the way that they do. Specifically, more so... Ursa. We just know that Ozai is a royal, royal, just bad guy in the worst way. <laughs> like you tried to sense yourself as like, I want to say a specific word, <laughs> but, I, but I can't say that word. <laughs> yes. Um, so the search was written by Jean Luen Yang, art and cover by Guru Hiru, and lettering by Michael Heisler. This was, of course, released in 2013. And as we said before, uh, they went on this journey. They decided to find out what happened to Zuko's mother. In part two, they got a few more answers. They decided to go to Ursa's village of Hira. And there, they found Norin and Noriko, who told them that Ikem had gone to the Forgetful Valley, a mysterious forest, as well as Ursa, who, when she returned from her time in the Fire Nation Palace, also disappeared there. So the gang ventured into the forest, trying to get answers. First, they found two waterbenders by the names of Misu and Rafa, brother and sister. Rafa, something had happened to him, something with his face, and he was wearing a mask. And Misu had found out about this place as a way to potentially give him a new face. She had heard tale of a spirit, someone who could gift someone a whole new face or restore it. So 
it didn't take long for them to discover, specifically Aang, the mother of faces. This incredible spirit who is just got a bunch of ethereal faces hovering around her. She has multiple faces herself. And kind of the cliffhanger that we were left on with part two was this massive, just full page spread of the mother of faces uh, in front of Aang. Uh, For Aang had traveled into the spirit world to try to track her down while Azula was prompted by her visions to try and kill Misu and Rafa, who she felt were getting in her way. Mm. So that brings us to the beginning of part three. It opens up right where we left off, but now in the material world, Azula shooting lightning at Misu and Rafa and Zuko standing in the way. The first page is Zuko redirecting the lightning with some absolutely incredible art, showing him as a silhouette. It's a really beautiful interpretation mm, of definitely. that technique. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so good. Um, Azula then kind of calls him naive, which he agrees with. Clearly, this is the straw that breaks the camel beetle's back because Zuko tells Sokka and Katara to take her down. Um, It echoes kind of the conversation that Iroh and Zuko had back in book two, where Iroh says, oh no, she's crazy, and she needs to go down. (laughs) Mm. Um, But this fight and clash is interrupted quickly by Aang returning to his body and bringing the mother of faces with him. Yes. Such an intense opening scene that, like, this is literally just us starting on book book, uh, book yeah no they are called, no part three not book three that's not what I mean but I think the whole thing is just this whole this whole series is just heartbreaking for any Azula stand such as myself out there <laughs> just because I think this opening part for me at least just shows she's trying to prove to herself and just prove as a whole that the only reason Zuko has her there is to benefit him and it's something that I've mentioned like in the past two parts that everything Zuko has done has been with the intention of kindness but it's always ended up with something benefiting benefiting him like taking the letter that was in her boot because she was vulnerable and asleep and other things like that and this moment here of him retaliating and then turning on her by asking Sokka and Katara to get involved is just him basically proving to her that yeah she's just a means to an end for him um and it's it's really upsetting that she's kind of self-destructing intentionally and unintentionally to show that no one does actually care about her but what I kind of wanted was especially when Aang comes back and sees what's happening and telling them to stop is that I kind of I wanted him to be mad at them in a way and kind of disappointed that they were attacking Azula because like Aang's obviously he's all about peace and yes Azula is bad but I kind of wanted him to do that because he does that later on but I don't know just at that moment I kind of wanted a reaction from him to what they were doing yeah I noticed that too that Aang is he ends up with an attitude of seeing the brighter thing, brighter side of things, 
But mm. I feel like over the course of this series, he has a hard time getting there. And he doesn't quite advocate in the way that I feel like he normally would. Yeah. But we transition next to a flashback. Uh, we pick up where we left off with uh, Ursa and Norin. Um, Ursa notes that Norin's name is peculiar, named after the Dragon Emperor in Love Amongst the Dragons when he entered the mortal world. Norin responds by saying, Well, you may have a point there, Ursa. She suddenly realizes that she never introduced herself and is very concerned. Then, Norrin shares two memories. One about her kicking him in the gut and shoving his face in the dirt when they were kids. And another about shattering his heart. And how she's going to walk away before they even get a chance to talk. He says, my dear Ursa, don't you think you've hurt me enough? Tears in both of their eyes, as Ursa only says, Icom. I I I don't know. I, I think I came around uh to the way that this language was, but when I first was reading through this scene, mm. I I was like, it kind of sucked that like Icom immediately was faulting Ursa when yeah. she clearly had really kind of like no choice in the matter. She was being plucked from this village, and there's no denying an order of the Fire Lord. Totally. I think I'm still kind of where you started. I'm a very pessimistic person I found over over this series. I'm just kind of like, no, everyone is a horrible person, except for... No, most people have their horrible moments. Everyone's okay, but I've, I've found a lot of neg- negativity, and I'm just pessimistic as a whole. But I don't like Icom anymore. I don't like him. Mm. I'm not a fan. Like it's it's like what you said like it's very clear that you you can't go against a royal member. He was actually about to be murdered as well when she told him to leave. Like what he she saved his life and now he's saying you've hurt me enough. Like what? I just oh, the the guys in this book at current suck (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's not i mean it's there's really there's a lot of there's a lot of issues i think with like with the way that a lot of the the boys and the guys in this book kind of carry themselves um there's there's also problematic ways i think that there's some problematic ways that like katara carries herself at times too but i Mm. mean the thing is is like Aang especially. Um, Sokka, I feel like, does somewhat keep a level head as things get more serious. He's yeah. kind of like, because I think he's really trying to look out for everything and understands, I think, the full threat of the situation. He's not yeah. ever really letting his guard down. Um, but it, it it definitely is interesting. And I, the way that I kind of interpreted it later with Ikem saying this is that it was kind of more of a, I don't know if it was just the way of a like this kind of banter that they had or just like a way of kind of saying it in a joking way but again Mm. you have to read it at face value that's me still trying to look into it and i still think that it could potentially be problematic Mm. but that is that is only one small piece of this massive puzzle here yeah for we go back to the present and the mother of faces towers over the gang and says i am the mother of faces through me separateness came into the world through me came identity the one became the many 
As Aang, Sokka, and Zuko discuss, she says that she grants one favor to one human once a season. and She says, make your request now. Aang tries to bargain uh, for more as he looks back to Misa, uh, Misu and Zuko. And she's just like, don't haggle me, bro. <laughs> it's like, I know you're the Avatar, but do not haggle me. Um, oh, dear. And we get to see a really amazing moment here for Zuko because Zuko understands that here's his chance, but he's come to hear about Misu and Rafa's story and they've waited so long and he says that they deserve to have it. And as Misu begins to make the request, Azula barges in and even just saying, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like even when you're strong, you're weak, Zuko. This is absurd. And... This is such a great character conflict moment. Two mm. motivations clashing because you have Misu wanting, I mean, she's been here for so long. She wants this opportunity to be able to do it. You have Zuko like maintaining a lot of his humanity, but Azula, the whole reason that she has come out here, she has been, it has been a harrowing journey for her because she has just mm. been plagued by these visions and now she's watching as her brother is throwing away that opportunity for two figures that she was already ready to kill and considered vagrants. And mm. it's just, I don't know. It's it's really interesting to see Azula kind of just like immediately go in on that. And she just steps in front, asks where Ursa is, and the mother of faces reveals that Ursa asked for a new face. And Zuko immediately recognizes it as Noriko. Dun, dun, dun. Connecting the pieces as we see that the very woman that they met with earlier was in fact all along Zuko's mother. Mm. Azula by this time has already left and Zuko goes to give chase. Um, but despite how things went down, Misu shows him the way to a shortcut to get back to the village more quickly. And Sokka follows him to back him up. Aang wants to help, but Katara asks, but who? We see that Misu is in the background getting desperate and is waterbending the mother of faces Oh no! before she can go back into the pool. And the, I mean, she still makes it out. And then Aang refusing to give up on these people dives into the pool oh our sweet baby boy is now being a bit of a dum-dum <laughs> i fear for his um <laughs> for what he's gonna do oh ang well ang, ang, ang. <laughs> it's so it's so much of ang's like ang is just ang does not give up he is mm. like he is so determined in that sense like when it means helping someone he will do anything and everything to make sure that they that he can because I, I mean the thing is is like he he came back to this world understanding that he ran away from helping people and accepting yeah. responsibility and so much of that now fuels him that if there is someone in need and we talked about last episode how like they're always going on these side quests and they're always kind of getting sidetracked with helping people. And that's what I True. kind of realized kind of reading through this again was that like, that is such a huge part of Aang's character now mm. is that 
after especially after the storm he realizes that he he came to term with thing he came to terms with things but he he, he cannot say no to helping someone it's kind of like a compulsion, really. Uh, I'd even say it's maybe even possibly like a, so this is technically a Percy Jackson term, but a fatal flaw. It's some, it's like a positive thing about him that he wants to help people. But like we see in the show, his need to help people really kind of causes problems with their journeys. And like, who knows how much faster they could have gotten to the North Pole and for um, waterbending training and stuff like that if he hadn't had this compulsion and need to stop everywhere to help everyone to prove that like he, he he's okay like he even though he forgot everyone at the time and was lost him being there now and fixing that problem now it's fine in the end and i think it's just it's become like a sort of addiction in a sense like he can't not help mm. he has to but the other part of it too is that if he didn't stop and do those things he wouldn't have the help that he gets when he needs it the most Mm. and that's the beautiful part about kind of the people that he meets along the way and the people that he helps we see the echoing effects of these acts of kindness and Mm. even though there is a loss to what he could gain personally or what others could gain he doesn't sacrifice a smaller thing for kind of this overall greater good. He sees a problem and if he's there, he will do something about it. And this is just reinforcing that even diving into something where he was like, guys, we need to be super respectful of this pool of water. Do not disturb it. And he legit just dives into the water. (laughs) Mm. Oh boy. (laughs) So we go to the flashback with Norin and Ursa and uh, Norrin takes her to the old prop warehouse uh, where all the props for the theater were and tells her what happened to him after she left, how all the other villagers felt sorry for him or just stared at him. He went to the Forgetful Valley and came back with a new face, a new identity, and a new life. I, I love this moment, too, when he's kind of talking about like his journey to the forgetful valley he holds up a mask to his face as like as he's telling the tale and it's it's so theatrical and i love it's just mm-hmm. a really nice character uh just a nice character moment for yeah uh norin slash Ikem in this moment um but it, it it's it's crazy because that is such a real thing that people who experience loss especially of a loved one, have to deal with. Mm. He even talks about how the village saw not just me, they saw you and me as a pair, and suddenly I became this like object of pity. And for some people, that's a really hard thing to remain in because suddenly it's just that you're constantly reminded of that by the way that people treat you and the way that people look at you. Oh, totally. Uh, I didn't think of that before, actually, in terms of it being very much a grief sort of element. That that makes sense. I like that. Well, I don't like it because grief, obviously, isn't something to like. 
I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it makes the story more interesting. I think. Yeah. And I, I get, I get what you're saying with that. Um, so Norin then proposes that they go together to the forgetful Valley because she is, Ursa is just thrilled that he has remained safe this whole time. And it explains why the Yuyan archer, why Vashir could not find him. It's because there was no Ikum anymore. And Norin tells her, you can remain safe as well with a new face of your own. But Ursa says that she's a mother now. She can't just forget about her children. And she says how maybe with a new face, she could go back and see them. But Norin says, but what then? Would you stay in the city, hoping to catch a glimpse of them from time to time, watch them grow up from afar? What kind of a life is that? Ugh. And Ursa responds, You don't know what it's like. They're always here. A part of me wonders what they're doing, wonders if they're happy or sad or in pain. Always. It's torture. Before Norin can even respond as he's kind of awestruck at this, she agrees to go see the spirit and find them. Oh my god, I've got so much to say about Icum, but I, at the same time I feel like I shouldn't say it because I'm going to be like on a mini raid. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like him at all. Icum in book, in, I keep saying book, in part one and part two was lovely. I hate him now. <laughs> He's, oh, I don't know what it is, but like... <sighs> Especially, with, it's kind of what we were mentioning before with like his previous conversation. He's just, he seems to be coming off as really emotionally manipulative. And especially mm. with his comment about seeing the children as well. Like, I know obviously it's not realistic in terms of like removing or like dulling the ache of not being able to actually be with her children. But if you actually care about someone, you would kind of be slightly more encouraging instead of literally straight on crushing the dreams kind of making them feel even sadder about this idea that it's probably not possible but you'd try to do something to ease their pain and this was just something that i kind of came up with is that the way he talks about Ursula and the way that he thinks about her it's like he's stuck in the past with this idea of who she is and what kind of person she is like he's got this i romantic idealistic idea of ursa and it's like he's trying to mold her back to it like before she had children before all of this happened mm. what she was like when when it was just then before ozai came into the picture and like he doesn't know anything about this new life like he just doesn't even consider it it's just straight away she should be like the girl i knew when we were younger and it should be easy. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely see your critique of that. And I think that that makes a lot of sense too. Because it, it is this idea that when we kind of... When we, have friend, when we have friends that we are close with or relationships that we have and then there are years in between it, 
it's I remember hearing once along those same lines of like sometimes we just try to remember and still kind of envision these people as they were. And yet we don't have the context. We don't know what they have been through, how they have changed. And by latching on to the way that they were, it's a disservice to who they are now. But seeing it from Eichem's perspective too, is that he experienced great loss. He lived out in the wilds by himself. He got a new identity. And then suddenly the love of his life comes back to the town. It's very, it's almost like a fairy tale. And it's like, and it's just, it's this wish fulfillment. And I think that in this moment too, he's very much carried away with it. I think that as we'll see as later, he he does get, he does encourage her at one point. uh, But I think that in this moment, he is kind of letting that fantasy uh, he doesn't want to accept because when she says, oh, well, I can go back and see the kids, he's hearing that as, okay, I'll get this face and then I'll just dip and then I'll never see you again. Mm. And that like puts him into a panic. But at, at the same time, it's like, you got to be respectful of that, that if that's her choice, that's her choice. Yeah, mm. that's true. That's a good point. Well said. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so Aang goes... Uh, we transition back to the present. Ang underwater. Uh, he makes his way deep into the water, which is, it's like abnormally deep. It's insane. <laughs> like, I don't know how deep these waters go, but it is some crazy spirit waters. Um, Have you, sorry, this is totally random. Have you ever seen, it's like a gif, but there's also like a clip from this British show called Vicar of Dibley where, you know, where people like, like jumping in puddles. And then suddenly one is really deep and you like sink up to like your shoulders or something like that. Yeah. That's why I feel like this this pool is. It's <laughs> what you think would be a small little puddle and then you jump in and you just disappear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, soon uh, Aang is attacked by like these crabs with like faces on them, <laughs> which are crazy. And he's like trying to fight them off. And like there are rocks everywhere that look like faces. And finally, there's one at the bottom. It's like almost very like kind of tiki-esque that has like these like bubbles coming out of it. And then it just blasts Aang back to the surface. The mother of faces rises back up and begins to chew out Aang, chastising him. She says, these humans trample into my forest to make demands of me as if I were their servant. They dare ask me to replace my precious gifts with new ones. Do you know how it feels to be told by such insignificant beings that your work is inadequate? The humans are so pitiable and my kindness so profound that I swallow my pride and grant their requests. It's crazy because this is like where we truly see the mother of spirits as I think in true spirit form. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, before we saw, she kind of says who she is and what she does. But then we realize it's like, if you piss off a spirit, this is like how they feel. Like they yeah. are, especially someone who has been around for that long. It's just like, you are ants underneath my boot. You are nothing. You are dirt. I have been here before everything, and you have the gall to be able to come in. And that's like the moment that she's taking, but it's it's just it's crazy. And then she just mm. tells him to leave. 
all of them yeah. to get out. And she's right as well. Like this is something that occurs quite a lot in terms of both like Avatar and Korra. There is the sort of not disrespect of the spirits, but a lack of understanding that leads to a disrespect towards them. Um, we see it more in like like season three of like Korra, for example, and even in um, the Turf Wars comic also. Mm, yeah. But here in this moment as well, that Ang isn't the greatest with his communication with spirits either, and this is just an example. Like he's led to the mother of faces feeling so not even just angry, but like upset at this idea that she does so much already, and she's having her own creation spat back in her face and yet she still does it Mm. yeah so as uh the scene transitions we go back to now ursa and norin in the forgetful valley we see ursa and norin they're happy together they begin to live in the wild norin showing ursa the way and then they see the wolf spirit Ursa looks sad for a moment, and Norin says, Don't be sad, Ursa. This is what you want. With a new face, you might be able to see your kids again. Ursa realizes that she's found her place in the world. Having lived with Ikem now, or Norin here, for the past last few months. Then Norin proposes that they bring her children back. To live like a family in Hira. Ursa merely responds, You don't know what Ozai is like. I wouldn't just be endangering me and my children. I'd be endangering you. And probably the whole town. She knows that Ozai wouldn't hesitate to burn that entire village to the ground. Just purely out of spite. Because that is exactly the type of person that he is. And how petty he would be just so that he could hurt Ursa for deceiving him and taking his children away. Yeah. I bet Ursa also knows that like Azula would probably also like like rat her out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh dear. Um, so Ursa steps forward to talk with the mother of faces and she asks for a new face. And the spirit tells her that she'll have a more plain face, but that she senses great pain in her. And Ursa responds, my pain comes from the memories of a life that I did not choose for myself. The spirit responds, I can do more than give you a new face. I can give you a new mind, one that does not remember the life that came before. Ursa is given a choice. Forget her time with Ozai, remember Ikem, but lose her memories of Zuko and Azula. She merely says, Zuko, Azula, I'm so horrible. She asks for a new face and mind, and the new face envelops, envelops her head, and the mother of faces wraps her hands around her head. Ursa screams out, then... She is reborn. And the next thing we see is Norin and Noriko getting married. 
Well, I can now add Ursa to my list of people I do not like anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this list is growing. Oh, there is so much in this that frustrates me to no end about Ursa's character. I think we'll probably talk about it a little bit more um, with the the note that we've got at the end, but this point here, I've, I find it to be nearly unforgivable what Ursa does here. Like, she is willingly, and almost without a second thought, giving up on her children, forgetting her children. And I think the thing that I picked up on is that she refers to her life and her children as her past. So she'd already given up almost immediately because she was thinking of them as a past life and not her current one or her future. And I think that's just, it's, I just don't understand why she could so almost easily in a way give up on her children the the supposed happiness in her life like it's just yeah i don't know so i i would make the argument that i think that the reason why she is giving up on them is because i think that ozai has completely drained her of all hope i think that that is the effect that he has had on her as the abuser and the fact that it's i mean think about it i mean it's 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 crazy because i mean it's as if I mean it, that it's like it echoes in a way the importance of like what we've seen with the Me Too movement and how these women who have been taken advantage of have been able to speak out and now mm. have like a platform and a way to be able to have someone backing them up. But here is Ursa. She knows that this is a man who is quite literally and potentially the most powerful and influential person in the world. And she has seen his viciousness and his cruelty and the way that he just goes to hurt people. And I, I would make the argument that I think that it's, she is, she gives up because he has drained that from her. But the thing is, is that she still feels regret when she says that she is horrible before this all happens. And that's the thing. That's the tragic part of what Ozai has done to her is that not only has he completely drained her of this hope, but makes her believe that it is all her fault. Yeah. Okay. I can, I can see your point. (laughs) Begrudgingly, I can see your point. <laughs> I I do understand where you're coming from, though, and I and I think that that's still like a valid like interpretation. Yeah, I think and read I'm just it. bitter. I think that's the thing here. I'm just a really bitter person at the moment. I'm at the point where I'm like, I love this story, but I'm so emotional, that I can't stand it anymore, and I'm really bitter, and I'm upset. I'm close to tears, Colin. Oh my goodness! This is what happens when they do a Zula wrong. You just you you yeah. you push this Fran to the limit. Zula alone. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> so we see uh, Zuko and Sokka back in the present make it back to Norin in Noriko's house before Azula. Sokka stands guard as Zuko goes inside. Norin 
is expecting him. And Key is thrilled. Zuko is baffled by the fact that they eat dinner together every night. He's just like, do you do this every night? And they're like, what, eat dinner? He's like, no, eat dinner together. And again, it's this just tragic moment where we realize that like, Zuko did not grow up with a normal childhood. And he did not grow up with this like, this warm sense of family that just gathers for a meal. And it's so alien to him. Mm. And he then asks Noriko if she's happy. She says, yes, of course. I'm where I belong. Zuko smiles and he gets up to leave. But Norin tells him to say his piece. He says, go ahead, young man. Do what you came to do. Tell her you haven't forgotten who you are. Zuko says, my name is Zuko. I am Lord of the Fire Nation. And I am your son. Ooh, shivers. Mm. It's a pretty pretty intense moment. And it's, it's yeah. interesting because, you know, Norin could have just said, all right, bye. Mm. And I think that, and I think that this is where the, the moments where I've had some misgivings about about Norin slash Icom, I feel like this is like coming around for me because I think he understands that like how much pain, how much it pained Ursa to abandon her children and to know that it's like things have changed now, and her son is here looking for her, and. Ozai is no longer a threat. And it's just, it sets up a very interesting kind of confrontation here. No, totally. And I completely agree with you. I I think the thing that really got me about this scene particularly was, was Zuko himself and about his growth throughout this series. Not just in terms of like, um, fire lord which is obviously is one of our discussion points but just him as a person like he's he was so desperate to find out what happened to his mother he was so desperate to find her and the moment he realizes who she is and sees that she is happy and she's loved and like she says this is where she belongs he was happy to get up and leave and never tell her the truth Mm. because she was happy he was willing to let her go because of she was finally happy and i think that just shows that he is truly one of the kindest souls in this collection for the search like he he has such kindness in him Mm. which is something considering his upbringing you wouldn't expect him to be able to have yeah and yet this moment is an example that he he truly is the goodest boy yeah well i mean we see that with between you know with him willing to sacrifice finding out about his mother by giving the you know the favor to misu and rafa and then we Mm. see him do this and i think that that's what you know that's what we see with zuko in this in this series is that it is he's understanding that like it is okay to be this way and Mm. this is who he is and this is very much an echo of 
who he was. And it's appropriate that Norrin says, tell her you haven't forgotten who you are. Tell her who you are. As the, the, the final departing line from Ursa to Zuko in the series was, never forget who you are. Oh, damn, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so we get back to uh, Ang and Katara, who are fending off like crazed spirit animals uh, that the mother of faces has kind of just like triggered. And Misu says that she cannot leave. And Ang airbends animals away from, from Rafa. And then he removes his mask to reveal that his face is missing. Ang, Ang recognizes it. A symptom of Ko the face stealer. Mother of Faces is like, hold up a minute. What did you just say? And then Aang says, Ko the face stealer. He's a spirit who looks kind of like a big, ugly sow bug with these big, ugly legs and a bunch of big, ugly faces. He's, and Mother of Faces is like, he is my son. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. It's such a great reveal. It's so silly and is so unequivocally Avatar for the like to have like this kind of moment like this. (laughs) Madness. Yeah. Um, So Aang starts to like backpedal and it's just like, oh, did I say ugly? Uh, (laughs) In pure Aang fashion of trying to backpedal here. Um, The spirit says, Mother Faces says, he's been estranged from me since time began. And the legends say that he misses me so much, he spent all of history stealing faces. She then reaches out to Rafa and restores his face. Aang says that he only pestered her for another favor because he had two relationships to restore, between a brother and a sister, between a mother and a son. Mm. So powerful. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because... I think what also motivates what motivates the mother of faces to really be able to help in these last like kind of this last part is that it echoes her own experience mm-hmm. a mother estranged from her own son and it's I think in any other situation it would feel like a what we see at the end like a deus ex machina or something that's just like oh, okay but it tracks and we'll get into that as as we see everything progress. Um, but Norin, uh, back at Norin and Noriko's house, Norin says that he had recognized Zuko from the very start, knowing that Ursa's past would come back to haunt them one day. He tells Noriko about her past life and why she doesn't remember any of it. Norin confesses that he too had an old identity, Ikem. And that's when Zuko says it. Then then maybe this is where I belong too. With my mother, my sister, and my father. Oh, that's such a dramatic turn. I just, I, I'm not going to go on another talk about Icon because I've done too many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Oh, actually, no, never mind. I take it back. I am. I'm going to talk about Icon. <laughs> <laughs> This is so I'm not going to do too much of a talk about it, but the one thing that I got about this, I, I'm trying to make sure I remember this right. He mentions that he knew it was Zuko because of his scar, right? Yes. 
Yeah, okay, I thought so, I just wanted to double check. So he knew what had happened to Zuko. He knew that he had been scarred. He knew that he had been banished. And that alone didn't convince him to tell his wife, whose child had been hurt and banished, just as she had been banished, to maybe bring Zuko into their life. And it's something that makes me think, just, did did he consider it? Did he not care? Or or what? It's just something that kind of popped into my, into my head. It's like, it's just, if he knew what had happened, why didn't he do anything? I think the question is when he found out that information. And I think that that would yeah. dictate, like, what... Because if it was something he found out early on, then it's just like okay yeah then there's like there's something wrong with that but like later on it's just like okay the world has kind of restored its peace and it's one of those things where it's like you know he knows that this is coming and they have had a kid now and it's kind of one of those things where it's just like do you disrupt what has happened so far and what you've built here um, but yeah, it's, I think it's, it's got some, it's got some interesting dynamics to it. And the questions though, are going to have to wait as the sound of fighting on the roof interrupts them. Azula comes crashing through the ceiling and firebends Zuko out of the way. Azula then confronts Noriko. Tell me mother, did you have to have a new daughter because your last one turned out to be such a monster? Oh my god. <laughs> Sokka tells her to stay back and she's like, back for more? Where's your little toy? And he's like, right there. And Boomerang <laughs> always comes back, clocks her oh, in the yeah. head. <laughs> and Sokka ushers Kiyi out to safety as Azula slams Noriko against the wall. She says, it all ends right now. Noriko responds, I don't know what you're talking about. Azula says, Oh, really, mother? So I've imagined all this? You haven't been trying to take me down from the moment I was born? As Zuko tells her to let her go, Noriko speaks up, cupping her hand around Azula's face. If what you say is true, if I really am your mother, then I'm sorry I didn't love you enough. Azula is stunned in this moment and speechless. Uh, my heart literally broke with when we see Azula's face after this. Because in this moment, us, well, Noriko at this point has unintentionally just proven to Azula everything she already believed to be true. And everything she hoped wasn't that her mother really didn't love her enough because in her mind she is unlovable and with everything that happens afterwards it's kind of like confirming to her probably what Ozai always taught her love is weakness power is the only thing that lasts forever mm. This is, of course, just such a heartbreaking moment. Um, and what really struck me, too, in this is that Zuko uses this moment to step in front of Noriko 
and then he and Azula clash. And there is this moment where it's like Azula was like that, but again, there's not really a a moment of like tenderness to just being like, hey, are you okay? Because that would never work, or at least that's what he thinks. And then it goes back to where it always is. And then Azula says, don't you get it, Zuzu? You and I will finally be free. You of a throne you never really wanted, and me of this incessant nagging in my head. Hmm. Noriko looks on. Azula goes on saying how easy it would have been the other morning when they were on the cliff for Zuko to drop her and get rid of her and the letter. It would free him. Zuko then takes out his Fire Lord top knot holder and said that he always knew that the throne is his destiny. He says the morning on the cliff, Azula, our relationship is so messed up. It's been like that as long as I can remember. Maybe it'll be like that for the rest of our lives, but one fact never changes. No matter what, you're still my sister. She says to him, shut up, shut up. She firebends at him and storms out. He and Noriko chase after her. He says, come back, please. I can help you. I want to help you. Azula stops, turns back with tears in her eyes. Same as always, Zuzu. Even when you're strong, you're weak. She runs into the forgetful valley. Then, they see a bright light. They see the mother of faces, towering above the forest with Aang and Appa on both sides of her. She comes to Noriko and asks if she wishes to remember who she once was. And Noriko says yes. Oh, this is so so (sighs) tragic. The way that this all ends for Azula. It it really mm. is. Ugh. That line as well that she keeps repeating is the... You can tell her father is the one that kept using that line. Like, even when you're strong, you're weak. But I feel like that last line, especially in this case, where she, like, she with the tears in her eyes and with her running away and with everything that's just happened... I think she's saying it to herself that even when she's strong, like maybe if she was considering staying with Zuko or being better and kind of trying again with Zuko, she can't because she's she's weak. Mm, projecting that a little bit. I can definitely yeah. see that. Yeah. It, and it's, it, it's one of those feelings, I think, where she is like, there's no turning back. Mm. Even though Zuko would try he even says that he would but it's interesting because now the mother of faces comes and offers to restore ursa's memories Mm. and her identity i hope she ursa does something by getting her memories back and not just have a, a reflection actually kind of realize what happened in the past and maybe look to the future to try and change it. Mm, definitely. Katara then says that 
they'll need to keep their guard up as a new day dawns. Because Azula may return. Aang, however, is staying positive. Yes. He says that she gave that letter back to Zuko, didn't she? And Sokka's like, no, she didn't give it back to him. She just dropped it by accident. Aang says, there's no way to know for sure that he thinks she meant to do it. Katara loves that he sees the bright side of things, but Sokka looks on skeptically. We see Rafa and Misu riding a boat together and Zuko and Ursa standing together. Ursa apologizes to Zuko, saying that he deserves the same apology that she gave to Azula. That she was sorry that she didn't love him enough. She says that she's proud of him. Zuko does say he needs to know about the letter. And she says that what she wrote wasn't true. No. Mm. This immediately transitions back to a flashback we saw from part two. And whereas it had left off at one point when Ozai tells Ursa that he had had that treacherous dog, Icom, slain, removed from the earth. Then Ursa says that he knows as well as her that Zuko is his son. And he says, of course he's my son. I had spies track your every move for months before we were married. Why would you write such an obvious lie? Ursa responds, Maybe I wanted to see if you were reading my private letters. Maybe I wanted to hurt you, even for a moment. Maybe it was just wishful thinking. Ozai responds, Is that what you truly wish? That Zuko was not mine? And Ursa says, that he turns out nothing like you? Yes. And then we get one last twist of the knife from Ozai. Turns this moment of Ursa being strong and standing her ground and defying Ozai. And he turns it into a weapon. He says, then that's how I'll treat him, dear wife. I want you to watch carefully from now on. Every time I speak harshly to him, every time I wound him, every time I treat Zuko as if he were the son of a treacherous dog, I will simply be fulfilling his mother's wish. Oh, this dude sucks. (laughs) (sighs) He is the worst. Mm. On so many levels. Yeah. Yeah. And admittedly, at this point as well, obviously, I have my rage going on here. <laughs> Ursa is clearly not as bad as Ozai. But she kind of, considering how long she has been with him at this point, because I think Zuko is around eight when she disappears, right? Or am I, I wrong? Think, I think so. That sounds about right. Yeah. So at this point, she understands the manipulative side of Ozai. She knows that things can be turned around. And having this, that like, I I will treat him as if he's not my son. I don't know. I just, it kind of makes me question her decisions even more, really. Like, she knew how Ozai was going to treat him. She knew what Ozai was going to do. And then, obviously, just on the, the Team Azula side, 
why does she not care about Azula? Like, this whole thing is all about Zuko, how she hopes Zuko won't turn out like him. Like, do, has she, she given up on Azula at this point? Like, to the point that she doesn't care if she d- turns out to be like Ozai or not? I don't know, it's just, uh... Mm. i i i feel (laughs) you so we get back to the present for the final scene ursa reflects on ozai how he was a wretched man to treat zuko like that to get back at her but even then zuko says but he's still my father he says that he feels that things are the way they're meant to be And Ursa says there's so much that she wants to tell him. And then everything comes full circle from part one. Wait, I want to know everything. From the beginning. Everything? Everything. For you, my dear, I'll start from the beginning. Zuko and Ursa walk amidst Hira. And we reach the end. Hmm of the search yeah i love that call back to the start that was that was so mm. nicely done yep it's it really really nice because it's like telling the story along the way and and having those flashbacks was such a perfect narrative tool for this uh graphic novel uh for this comic i mean it, it was it was so well executed and that was that i mean it was that is one of avatar's bread and butter like traits is that it does flashbacks so well Mm. and they are always so meaningful and so impactful and it was just great to see them do that oh totally and the expansion on the certain scenes that we saw from avatar itself in the comics i think is what kind of got me because we're seeing it from a different perspective we're seeing it from ursa's perspective not the sort of idealized dreamlike version that Zuko has whenever he has a flashback it's the actual reality of what was going on instead which is really cool so the last thing I do want to say because just echoing your point that you made just before this about Ursa kind of making this decision is that there's something that I think we didn't really consider that we didn't think about because we have been looking at it through the lens of Ursa making this decision of course for Zuko and defending him but here's the crazy part if ursa had not done this had not intervened would iroh have become fire lord mm. i'd i'd assume so yes and that's the interesting part because mm. she guaranteed the succession to a madman yeah Ursa, what were you thinking? <laughs> but it's, I mean, it, it, that's that's what makes it so complex. And it, it's what makes that scene of her in the, in the royal palace garden when she is saying how a mother will do anything to get back at someone who hurts their, their child. Yeah. And without consequences be damned. Mm. so I want to reflect now that we're at the end here our overall thoughts of the search with our main points of discussion 
Again, Zulos, <laughs> Zulos. Again, <laughs> Zuko's evolution as the Fire Lord. Azula's journey through madness, piecing together the shards of the past and the influence of Ozai and Ursa. Um, we also uh, want to do a special shout out uh, to Azula Bending on Instagram, also Loopy777 on Tumblr. Uh, recently, uh, the past like few days, posted uh, this four-part essay. Uh, she's posted the first three parts uh, about Ursa and the idea of the two Ursas. Um, and I really wanted to kind of also include that as part of our final discussion as we're kind of uh, reflecting on these points. So let's hear some of your final thoughts and including this uh, kind of uh, these arguments and thoughts that uh, um, Azula Bending brought up. All right. Okay. Um, I think the main one, just because obviously I've been Team Azula through the whole thing, so I'm going to have to end full-on Team Azula. Um, the thing that I picked up throughout the majority of the search is is that, that second point, that Azula's journey through madness. I think what's interesting is how we see her at the start and how we see her at the end. She is, for lack of a better term, mad at the start, but she still has a sense of sanity. But as we move closer and closer to the end, she reaches her goal as she sees her mother again as she receives those words from her mother each different point was just another crack in her already what's the what's the word soft psyche like there there was Mm. so little of it left there was so little of her left to kind of hope for and root for that the moment this happened with her mother, that was her gone. I feel like there's almost no chance now of Azula getting her happy ending, so to speak. She's at that point of no return. She's had all of her worst fears confirmed, that she is not in control of her own mind, that the world is seemingly against her. Her own brother, who speaks as if he wants to care about her, but still uses her for his own means. Her mother, who willingly admitted that, yes, she didn't love her enough. And then her own mind turning that against her to say it's because she wasn't enough. And it's just this this continuous heartbreaking progression throughout just these three sh- short parts that show that she's at that point of possible no return now from everything that's happened. And I think it's really interesting and then incredibly heartbreaking at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, it, this has been such a an incredible insight into Azula as a character. And again, one of the things that we almost had were, was a season four where apparently Aaron e. has said that there was a plan for a an Azula redemption arc. And in the way that we see this end, it's, it ends in tragedy for her. Zuko Mm. and Ursa, they get the ending that they wanted. Azula finds out and she gets the answer that I feel like she was always afraid to come to terms with. And she knew would be true. And 
that is it leaves her empty Mm. and it's sad because she just she leaves and she disappears um she does return eventually as we'll see Mm. in smoke and shadow but it really is i think unfortunate that we don't get to see her have a chance for redemption that this moment was not something that was cathartic that it caused her to go deeper into this just darker place and it makes me sad but at the same time i think it's also that's that's good writing because i think if you feel sad about a character for that then that means the author successfully made you care about them Mm. even if they are quote unquote the villain (laughs) yeah emphasis quote unquote yes i think it was really interesting this just popped into my head as as you were talking this whole moment of her running off and ursa and zuko getting that sort of happy ending reflects back on that scene we have of them as children with ursa and zuko ahead with azula left in the shadows the two of them happy while she isn't it's just another reflection of that happening all over again and she's being left out once again and maybe that's even what she thought when her mother says to her i didn't love you enough she's probably then gone to well you loved zuko more than me as well Mm. so it's all just her not being enough her being pushed out to the side I think this was just not another part of it that it's been confirmed that she will never be on the in crowd, so to speak, with her mother and her brother. Yeah. And to reflect on Zuko, this idea that he opens up this journey with this idea of wanting to restore dignity to his family, that he wants to understand his place in the world with all of this. I think that in this final moment that he has with Azula, that he still, despite all of this, still wants to help her and still wants to be there for her. I think it's one of those things that when she runs and leaves to the forest, it's that moment I think that we, that we all have with someone that we kind of clash with, that you have to realize at some point you cannot help them until they help themselves. Mm. And I think that Zuko is at peace with this because he finds the answer that he was looking for about his mother. And even better, he has his mother back in his life. And I think that that's a beautiful thing because I think that he doesn't have Ozai really. He doesn't have Azula in a way that's positive. And now he has someone that's blood that he really can connect with and rebuild with. And I think that that's, it's a beautiful part. He fights hard to get to this point and he gets there. And I loved seeing his journey over this questioning of whether or not he was going to actually be the fire Lord anymore. But in the end, he knows his own destiny despite whatever his wishful thinking might be. I think that it's, it's kind of like a moment 
it's like Galadriel being tempted by the ring. Yeah. That she says, I passed the test. I'll remain Galadriel and pass into the West. And this idea that I think he was faced with this opportunity that he could have just, he could have just faded off into this life. He could have just abandoned his position. He could have left the throne and never had to do anything with it again. But he understood that that's not who he is. He is a man of honor. Mm. Honor! (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping you were going to do that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So the last points I want to close out on is, again, this, uh, this essay that Azula Bending brought up was that this idea of two Ursas, that we see Ursa in the show as someone as they argue as someone different than we see Ursa in the comics. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of really good points too. Like you were saying here in your notes with like the backstory element um, that we get to know or we're left with questions of why she did these certain things. And again, it gets back to like what we were saying about <laughs> it's like, <laughs> did she realize that she was handing over the fate of this nation to someone she knew was a madman. She must have known that Iroh was at least in some former way so much better than Ozai for the future of the Fire Nation, but yet was kind of ruthless in this moment for her, yeah. how much she would defend and try to save Zuko. Yeah. Yeah, it is crazy. I I really do like what is brought up in this essay, especially the main comparisons of the Ursa we see in the show to the Ursa we see in the comics, and that Ursa in the show doesn't seem to hold any form of resentment or latent anger. She is kind, she is caring, she's not happy, but she is happy in a way if that makes sense like you can tell that she is content as much as she can be in a life that was most likely arranged if we didn't have this backstory like that was what I usually had headcanoned in the past that this was an arranged royal marriage mm-hmm. that she was a, a nobleman's daughter which technically she, she is a nobleman's daughter technically isn't she yeah, if, I mean, if you think of lineage from the sense of, like, Avatar Roku. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, and that was, I mean, it's it's definitely some interesting points, but I think that I th- the, the argument that they're making with this is that from when we see in the flashbacks in the show, she seems happy. She seems like she has a, you know, a smile on her face with everything. And the counterpoint that I made to it is that I think that this is also Zuko's perspective. And I think yeah. that we sometimes we will not only see our parents in a more positive light, especially the one parent that he actually had a good relationship with. Um, but also it's this idea that Ursa probably didn't want to show what she was going through to Zuko, mm. because I think that when parents are dealing with financial stressors and emotional weights, things that they are dealing with, especially for young kids 
they don't want to show them that. Yeah. Because suddenly that uh, leads to a whole slew of questions that you have to answer. And the, the kids, honestly, at that point, do not have the emotional capacity to fully grapple with what you are dealing with as an adult. And especially in Ursa's situation, it's like your father is a horrible, abusive man. And how do you... Because as soon as she's, you know, if she brought that up, you know that Zuko is going to try to stand up for her or say something to Ozai, which she knows is only going to result in Zuko either being hurt himself or something worse. Yeah, that's a fair point. I I kind of I had the perspective idea of it being Zuko's sort of idealism and like dreamlike idea of what his mother was like and who his mother was I suppose I kind of didn't think that she would be putting on that sort of the facade aspect to keep Zuko safe in case he stood up to his father in his mother's defense or anything like that 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 makes a lot a lot more sense in terms of us seeing this sort of happy-go-lucky version of Ursa in comparison to to what we know from this this backstory now Mm. um and it's interesting there there are so many interesting points in this this essay um <clears throat> I, I i took the time and i read the the entire thing on it it's, it's very long but it's so well researched and studied also there's they make some really really great points there are some that definitely i i, I disagree mm. with but um the majority i can agree with especially slightly in seeing us as two different people but Mm. going off of what you've just said it makes sense that we would it's like the sort of the abused wife thing that you have the facade for like your friends who don't know what's actually happening and then you have the reality behind that facade of what is actually happening at home yeah kind of that thing of um where where people are surprised when they find out that someone was um a wife or husband beater they're like but they they were so nice there was there were no signs whatsoever and it's usually been because the person has hidden it so well both the abuser and the abused yep so i i i keep trying to nearly saying i like that idea but i don't want to say because it sounds like i sound like i like abusive relationships <laughs> and stories <laughs> just, yep, it's, that's not what I mean guys I promise not I'm not that. endorsing abusive relationships <laughs> if you are in one please get to safety we love you guys all so much look after yourselves and drink water yes um so we'll be sure to include in the episode notes the link to that essay as well um if uh anybody wants to check that out um mm. But that brings us to the end. Here we are all the way. We made it. Three <laughs> parts. Uh, I mean, th- this is this was a great journey. I'm glad, you know, especially after we did the uh, the the journey with uh, imbalance. And now, you know, here we are. Mm. We're going to we, we made our way through the search. Uh, so, Fran, thank you so much for for joining me and for all of your notes and your insight and your commentary uh it was it was wonderful kind of doing this deep dive with you again oh thank you i i truly appreciate you having me back on um for this the imbalance was brilliant and this has been been just as good even if it has been me being team azula and then raging all the <laughs> other times um it's good it gets all the stresses of a long day at work out yes. so <laughs> 
Um, so Frank, can you tell the listeners how they can find you in some of the projects you'd like to plug? I can indeed. So you guys can find my Avatar and Percy Jackson theory and discussion YouTube channel at A Healthy Dose of Fran, where if you want to find out what would have happened if Cora had joined the Red Lotus, or maybe in future I'll be talking about why Ursa may be a bad mother. Um, <laughs> Uh, you can search A Healthy Dose of Fran. Um, you'll also be able to find me at A Healthy Dose of Fran on Instagram and at A Dose of Fran on Twitter. I now also have a Percy Jackson podcast for any people interested in Percy Jackson called The Best Damn Camp. Um, all social media is at Best Damn Camp Pod. Um, and I have episodes out every Wednesday. Very cool. Just as me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, you can find uh, Legend of Portalcast on Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast. Find us on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. Guys, I've been doing more on Twitter. I promise. I've been trying really <laughs> hard to do more Twitter. I know that it's been unloved for a while, but I'm I'm doing more. I'm doing the retweets. I'm doing the likes and comments. I'm trying Twitter's here, guys. Twitter's hard. <laughs> Um, so you can find us there of course um, you can also visit our website at legendofportalcast.com and if you are interested in becoming a patron uh, in supporting the show uh, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash legendofportalcast pretty exciting guys if you want to become a patron we've got something pretty exciting coming up this Saturday we are going to be doing our first Avatar D&D podcast recording for our first official episode so we are going to be live streaming that as we are recording it um so if you are interested in checking in checking in and watching that you only have to do a one dollar a month pledge uh for patreon you can cancel it at any time but of course we appreciate any support that comes in um and there's a bunch of other cool perks that come with all the different levels so be sure to check that out and to all of our patrons who are supporting us, Fran, one of them included, thank you. Uh, <laughs> we just want to say thank you so much uh, for helping make this show possible. And uh, until next time, folks, thank you for listening. And stay tuned for next week. We've got a really exciting episode planned with Kevin. And uh, it's going to be some very cool history themes. I'm very excited to dive in. Oh but until God. next time and next week, guys, thank you so much. And for now, hey, let us leave.